Okay, we are going to start. Sorry about the delay there, getting everything all ready and uh, together. I've got a question for you. How in the world did the church and the gospel ever survive even the first century? How did it survive? Uh, Christ, the very basis of the belief of Christianity and the church, was crucified. We know the apostles were persecuted and they were martyred. There was one left by the name of uh, John who was an apostle who was persecuted and abandoned to the Isle of Patmos to be persecuted in a heavy way there, just uh, probably breaking rocks. What a position that these apostles had as they followed Christ. They get persecuted, they get martyred, they get killed. Almost all of the churches that came underneath the teaching of the apostles and then later Paul, as he took it to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles, we know that they were too persecuted, some more than others. There was a heavy barrage coming from the world. Christianity didn't fit in. And we get a sample of this through seven churches that's found in Revelation 2 and 3, which is what we have been studying for the past few weeks. We're kind of nearing the end of that or we get into the last portion of these churches, then it will get into a future tense for the most part. The seven churches of Asia Minor illustrate what's going on in the widespread church at that time. All throughout the world, this was happening. And these seven churches are an example, an illustration Difficulties, disappointments, discouragement. Church was really challenged by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemy hates it when peace of the gospel is offered to people. And so the enemy takes it out on the church. The church belongs to Christ. That's the answer of how it made it through the first century, and not only the first century, but the second, third, fourth, and all the way up to right now. It's incredible. There's no other institution that has done what the church has done because it belongs to Christ. We're a part of that. I've never really been a part of an organization that is so successful. 2,000 years, and really you can take it back further than that, we think of the birth of the church at Pentecost, but really all the believers in God, in the Messiah throughout the history of mankind. And we know that they've had their trials and temptations and even failures, but they belong to Christ, the ones who are true believers. And He makes sure that the church perseveres because it's preserved and that the truth marches on. We have been a part of that, folks. Can you think of any better force to be under than the church? It is a force. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And we are to go on the offensive. Gates of Hades. Not going to win. These churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are unique. They're all different, yet... There are kinds of churches that have existed in all periods of time. From this time period, which is real, it happened. These churches existed historically. And then throughout all the ages, you can see how one of these churches or two or all seven of them can fit into one church at that time. Or churches. And... Even individuals, in a sense. We can be like a Thyatira. We could be corrupt. Or a Pergamos, compromising in our faith. Or at times, like today that we're talking about, we could be dead. Now, a true believer is not dead. They have been reborn. But there's a sense where one seems to be sleepy. Almost like dead... Let me tell you, if you are, God will wake you up and He will make sure that you get up and start marching if you're His. See, 
we can identify with these seven churches, can't we? As we've gone through four of them, we've seen good, solid churches, had solid doctrine. We've seen compromising churches. We've seen churches that really are corrupt. And a lot of these churches really have not true believers. There's believers in them, but not all are true believers. They would be like the weeds, the tares among the wheat. So, one thing that we know that we all have in common with all saints, we are just sinners saved by grace. That's what we were. He's turned us into saints. Incredible thought. That's what God can do. And a true Christian wants to know who Christ is. A true Christian wants to get the depths of who Christ is, the depth of His Word. A Christian really hungers for Christ. You might be hungering for something and you go chase something else. You don't get satisfied, do you? You never will. Let's just cut to the quick. You get satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone. Not anybody else, and not anything, not any kind of fun, entertainment, all the drugs, alcohol, all the stuff that's out there, that doesn't do it. That's already proven. They lose. They make you lose. But we know that Christ is all. We sang that song, Christ is all. He's everything. He is our everything. And then, the people that we have relationships with, now it changes that relationship. We see people in the church that we need. They need us. We need the church. This is the best thing that's on earth along with the Word of God. The church. You see, Christ built And He's the foundation. It doesn't fall apart. The church overall is faithful. The church is composed of overcomers. We are overcomers because in 1 John it says the overcomer is the one that has faith in Christ. He gave the faith to us and we overcome because we repent and we hold fast. And that's the work of Christ in us also. This is biblical theology. It's also known as Reformed theology because all that stuff was out the door about 500 years ago. And we... The church was lived through the Dark Ages for a thousand years. Dark Ages. And then there was a Reformation and the light came on. People would turn back to the Word of God. Across the world, the light is going out. We are the light of the world. We have the truth. This is what we want to be alive. Not dead. We want to be faithful. So anyway, there were tears in the church, compromised, corrupted the characteristics. And you know what they do? They bring death to the church. We're going to be looking today at Sardis, and we're going to get a picture of what a dead church is. It's the last thing that I ever want to hear about any church. It's a dead church. Oh, that's sad. Sardis is sad. Let's check into it. Let's grab our scriptures. Turn to Revelation 3, starting at verse 1 through 6. Let's read that precious portion there. That's for even us today. 1900 years later. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up, straighten the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people at Sardis 
who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, great God, Your Holy Word has just been read. As we speak about it, Lord, may You be blessed. May we be blessed. May You be honored and glorified as we speak about what You wrote and try to be as accurate as we possibly can without error that it will enhance our thoughts of who You are, what You have planned for the church, and what happens to churches that compromise and they go corrupt and then eventually die. Lord, forbid it that we would ever, ever be a dead church. We desire to be alive. Amen. You guys alive today? All right. Tony, are you alive? Tony is alive. We're thankful, Tony. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 1. Same outline. One difference. No commendation, really, this time. There is kind of a, a little bit of one, but I didn't put it on the outline. It wasn't worth putting it there. <laughs> Most of the people in this church are dead. It means they're dead spirits. They're not believers. There are a few believers in this church. In other churches, there was probably a majority who were sinning. This church, very few Christians really in it. Those churches exist today. I feel sorry for them. Because you know what? Probably means the Word of God is not being preached. They might read a few scriptures and then they tell you how good you are to be. Which, without explaining the scripture, you can't be good. Only Christ is good. But by His, like in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says being renewed daily. Renewing our minds in the Word of God. That will keep you from being dead. It'll make you alive every time. So here's what we have going. The angel. Angel is what? Pastors, elders, messenger, angels. Take your pick. It's okay. We go to the next one. Sardis. What is Sardis about? Sardis is a real town, city. It was a real church there. It actually is a city today. Really, it's a little village that's there. It's not much. Uh, can't really tell for sure if there's really much there. It really lost all of its glory it once had. See, Sardis lay uh, about 30 miles from the last church that we looked at last week, Thyatira, south uh, east of there, I do believe. We expounded on that. We move on. Sardis is a manufacturing city. Remember, if some of these details, historically and everything, may seem a little boring at first, especially if you don't like history and culture, but I will tell you, it puts us into the place of where the people were at that time. Historically, we know these things of like what they were. They had an age of greatness in that city. They were one of the greatest cities in all of Asia, as a matter of fact. The modern Turkish cities there is called Sart. This was Sardis. I took from there. Sardis, in its heyday, though, one of the oldest, one of the greatest cities in Western Asia. It was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia at one time. That's pretty important. It had a king by the name of King Croesus. Does anybody here ever remember of hearing that name, King Croesus? Well, honestly, I didn't either. 
But every commentary I turned to, they would say that it related uh, in the sense when you have a, uh, it's kind of like a proverbial statement. It's like to be as rich as Croesus. And I'm going, what's that mean? And I'm going, why should I share it with them? Uh, they're probably not going to know either. I was hoping there was going to be one person that would say, yeah, I've heard that. Nobody's heard it. It really doesn't mean a thing then, does it? I will tell you that he was very wealthy. <laughs> he was very well off King Croesus. To be as rich as Croesus, so was the city. It was a boom town economically. Boy, it was doing well. Uh, it was a junction of five main roads. A very important city. You know those one-horse towns that they, they call them little bitty village towns and such? They have one road going to them. Some of them have these gravel roads. And some that are not quite as fortunate have dirt roads leading into them. And that, that really does happen. <laughs> we have in North Michigan up there, they have dirt roads. <laughs> This place had five main roads. Jeff City has Highway 54, 63, and 50, uh, close to I-70. I've ran out of numbers. There are county roads and such too, you know, Route C and that kind of thing would go on. Uh, but we're pretty important. We're the capital here. So we have to have different ways from all directions. The highways run... When you have that, that means you're significant. They had five of them. They had one more road than we did, Major Road. Okay. They had a trade center there. They were a carpet industry. Carpet industry. They were a woolen industry. They made clothes. Matter of fact, the Lord alludes to speaking of white garments later on in this section. Who knows? Maybe related to that. Another thing they did is pan for gold there. They had uh, quite a bit of gold there. The gold and silver coins were first minted, guess where? In Sardis. And they had an imprint of a god on that coin, as most of them did. But they were wealthy, they were highly successful in their economic endeavors. They were a playground for the rich and famous. This was a pretty cool place to be. This is where people wanted to live. Um, thing is, they were a great city at one time, partly through military conquest, and I guess you could say they had really a great Fence. I have a picture up there. If you'll see that, uh, looks like a mountain. A lot of those cities had these acropolises at that time. It's great protection on three sides is really what it was. Nobody could get to them of how they were situated. So that was quite an advantage. But I will tell you, they lost their former glory because they became complacent and then were overtaken militarily. It was a difficult city to attack. 1,500 feet high is that Acropolis. Those are the ruins that we would see today. There's actually a synagogue that's in ruins also. You know, it would be almost impossible for anyone to ascend. You ever heard of Cyrus, though? Remember the Medes and then the Persians? Cyrus besieged the city. His soldiers tried to figure out how to attack it. Finally, they found somebody of, of the city of Sardis and a soldier lost his helmet. Somebody went down and got it and then went back up and they discovered how he got up there. And so you can see what happened to that city later. They were overtaken. Then later, uh, there was a leader by the name of Antiochus and he did the same thing, basically. Held in protection but they weren't watching, and we'll get to that in, in a little bit. There was a, pay, uh, a pagan deity. The deity was Sybil. Sybil was found on the coins of this town of this, and of the district that was around them. And this pagan god, Idol, was supposedly one who could restore the dead to life again. 
I doubt if that ever happened. But that's what they believed anyway. Well, if you look at Sardis, it had a problem. It was dead, and it really didn't come back to life again. Twice it had been conquered. So, sadly, the church in Sardis became like the city did. It had died. And there was no sign of a resurrection. I don't think Sybil is going to be able to raise the church or the city. Now, we're, we're told, in a, you know, I guess, uh, really, uh, we're not really told in Scripture really about how this church came into being, but we are told that as far as Ephesus is concerned, Paul took the gospel there, then the gospel went out by the locals and went all uh, in that uh, western Asia, Asia Minor, and distributed the gospel to people. So that was probably how it got its start. It did have a very famous leader at the time in that church, an apologetic historian, one who was called a bishop. And that was in the late 2nd century. So 170, 180 A.D., this Milito, this would be after the fact of the matter when this happened, but he was quite the apologist and quite known, a great defender of the faith that they had. They... uh, when you think about it, they had a name. They had much activity. They did a lot of things. They had a great reputation known by all around. A magnificent history. Yet Christ said, you are dead. So, that's our first part. That's the address. They are addressed by the angel, and now we get to the very characteristics of Christ, which is the same pattern, same flow. Christ now is called the se- uh, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. So the characteristics are what? Seven spirits of God and seven stars. We've seen this before. Seven spirits of God in chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. What seven mean? Completion. Perfection. The perfect seven spirits of God. Um... Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. We've taken a look at this before. We won't, when we were in chapter 1 that we read, this is of Revelation. Isaiah chapter 11 now, verse 1 and 2, I believe it is. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and the branch from the roots will bear fruit. Who is that? That's the Messiah. That's Christ, right? The Spirit of the Lord, there's one will rest on Him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's the seven (laughs) spirits. They belong to Christ. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. And he has possession here by the of the spirit. The spirit is depicted here as possessed by Christ Himself. And Sardis, this church who is dead, needs to see Christ possessing the seven spirits or this life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. They're dead. What do they need? They need life. How are they going to get life? through the Spirit of God. If you're dead spiritually, that means you do not have the Spirit. Your Spirit is dead, or the Spirit of God is dead in you. You have not Him. So, the seven stars, what's that? Well, in chapter 1, verse 16, we've seen this whenever we saw the vision of Christ. In His right hand, He held seven stars, 
And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. So there's Christ. He has seven stars. And then we go to verse 20. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Seven lampstands of seven churches. So the seven stars are the messengers, the angels, the pastors, elders. So he has possession of the Spirit, and by the Spirit being in those messengers, he is taking total rule in his churches. The Holy Spirit leads the messengers as the Holy Spirit is alive in the church. And so there are the seven spirits of God, the seven stars in all the completion and all the perfection. Christ with with the Holy Spirit empowerment, life-giving spirit there rules in the churches. So there's number two. The third one leaves something amiss. In your former outlines, you would have seen the commendation of the church. In this one, it's not there. Remember, before he gets to the condemnation, by His grace, He gives them great hope and encouragement. And they needed it. Because they were beaten down by the people around them, family, locals, people that hated the church. But he has really nothing to give them. As a whole, there are individuals. Very few, by the way. So, do you see that he drops one of the parts of the outline here? They're dead. He says, I know your deeds. He's been saying that to the other churches. They were good deeds. That you have a name that you're alive. They have a name. People know them. Even in the city, people know of them. And then from the other churches and people from all around about this church. They have a name. They really seem like they're alive in, in their church. He says, no. But you're dead. You have a name that you really have something going. But you don't. That's what he says. There's a Lutheran commentator here that said with reference to Sardis that it was a church suffering from spiritual dry rot and deadness. It's pretty good adjectives there. Dry rot and deadness. You ever seen dry rot? It's dead. Everything appears to be normal on the outside, but what's on the inside? Nothing. Nothing alive. You know, our churches today in the uh, world can be like that, can't they? They go through the motions. They can do right things. They can say right things. But on the inside, there's nothing there. There's absolute deadness. Could we have some things like that that is not showing root? To have fig leaves but never to have any figs. Jesus had pointed that out before to illustrate Israel. It was a tree that put out the leaves but never had the fig trees. It was already too late. Figs weren't there. He cursed it. Next day is cursed. Dead. You know what? Any church could be like Sardis. Once alive, and all of a sudden. It's not all of a sudden. We've already seen churches already that have corruptness. For that compromising. It was, somebody said, like a well-kept mausoleum. Look good on the outside. It's a dead church. Cold and dead. People were talking about the churches in Europe that had once been alive because of the Reformation. 
all through Europe, whether it be Germany, Italy, even there were churches there, France, some of them there, true church, especially in England, the whole British Isles. They say today those churches are just dead. There are church buildings there. People have taken them over for other things. No church meeting. People like to take pictures of them. There's nothing there in it. The church is made of people, isn't it? it? This place in Sardis was shining because of the brilliant light of the past. It lived in the past. It had once been glorious. It's trying to live on those laurels. Does that ever happen? Yeah, I bet you all know a bunch of churches that were once a church that was alive and then slowly but surely nothing was left in it. Like I say, it's the worst thing that I can say that happens to a church that it dies. The church, by definition, is life, right? We are the called out ones. The church is ecclesia. Ecclesia means called out ones. That assemble together. They're called out. That's the church. It's full of life. Yeah. Life. Fruit will be there. Sardis appeared to be alive. It was dead. They adopted the world. They tolerated sin. They let the world in. They committed all the sins that everybody else in the city committed. They left their first love like Ephesus. They courted the world like Pergamum. They tolerated sin like Thyatira did that we looked at last week. And now sin has totally taken over in this church. It's full of deadness. There's no real life to speak of outside of very few. Look in Ephesians 2.1. Guys that have been born again, you know this one very well, don't you? This was us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What does that mean? It means you were dead. You can't come back to life on your own. Oh, okay. I'll choose God one of these days when, it, when it's right. Right now I've got a lot of things on my mind and things I've got to do, so I'll choose God later. I know. You know what? They can't. It's impossible. That is where the Gospel starts. You're dead. You're a sinner. You're lost in your sins. You've affronted a holy God. You have no right to enter into heaven. You've violated all of His commands. You're dead. Colossians 2.13 Only God can make us alive, but God being rich in mercy. It said in Ephesians 2.4. I didn't read that. But that's where life... He made you alive together with Him. No, I made myself alive. No, He made you alive. He made you alive. Did you create yourself? No. Well, the same way with being born again. Can you be born again because you're smart? And, well, I, I worked up my belief. No, you were dead. Colossians 2.13 I mean, this is, this is basic 101. Salvation 101, I believe, right? It really is. This is nothing new. But I'll tell you what, I think that Gospel would be probably not be said in that way in most places today. You'll probably get some kind of works, some kind of, I was baptized in the church, uh, I did this, I did that, I walked the aisle, right? Anything but, I was a sinner lost to my sins. 
I broke all God's rules. He's holy. I'm not. I don't have a chance. Only Christ Himself brought me to life. That's why John Newton, he knew where he was at. He wrote the song called Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now am found. I once was lost, but I found Jesus. Which one is it? He knew full well. You know, he was a, a, a drunkard. Had the worst vocabulary you can imagine. A sailor that he was. By the way, let that be a lesson to us. Watch our language, right? The world has taken a language today that's acceptable everywhere and don't copy it. Sometimes we think, well, I guess that word's okay now. <laughs> but it wasn't 20 years ago. Uh, probably that word is still bad. You know? We don't reflect Christ when we use language that does not uh, be seasoned with salt. And it's everywhere. So I thought I'd just throw that in. It was free. It wasn't here. It wasn't even in our text, right? Did I get to Colossians 2.13? Okay, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, look at this, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. When was that? When we were dead, He made you alive. Is that clear? Wow, does it ever say, how do people miss this? Now, we go back. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. Wake up. Wake up. How can they wake up if they're dead? Well, you know what? He's offering the Gospel to them. They are responsible to respond. Wake up. Wake up. What wasn't dead? Evidently there was something that was not dead. They're about to die, but something that wasn't totally dead. What kills a church? Sin kills a church. Error in doctrine kills a church. Lack of. Compromise kills the church. Corruption kills the church. The member's sin kills the church. The leader's sins. The sins of the people in the church, sin of commission, the sin of omission, little by little, sin kills. You see, it's over quite in a long time. It wasn't just overnight that Sardis became dead. You see, it died for a long time, and there were things that they could have stoked back up. You know, when a fire is really, it seems like it's out, but there's a little bit of hope there. Want to get that thing going again? Well, it became hardened, became warped, became twisted. And he's saying, if there's anything that hasn't died, if there's any truth at all, if there's any virtue at all, if there's any purity at all, if there's anything worth talking about that glorifies God, revive it. Keep it from going out. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. Rescue it. Deeds that were not completed. He says, I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Evidently, they were doing some good deeds, but they weren't complete. Revive those deeds or they're going to die. 2 Timothy 3.5 says this. It's about characteristics in the last days. And this is in reference to them. Paul, in, in writing the letter to Timothy, says that they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. You know what they were doing? They were doing the works of their own. Rather than being spirit-empowered, life-empowered, by the Spirit, it was their own way. They carried on a great activity, 
without the power of God infusing it, their works were not complete because they were not Holy Spirit empowered. This church was without the Holy Spirit. So in verse 2, we get the command. This is the command now to the church. And of course in verse 2 it starts off, wake up. We just now kind of mentioned that. As they had, were kind of sleeping there, sleeping dead, whatever. But what it's saying though, there's still hope. There's some embers there. These, actually, when you think of believers in this church, there's few, and they need to be stoked so maybe the church can come alive. Chuck Swindoll has a statement on this. I think it's kind of interesting. What begins as a deathbed scene, that's just what we've been talking about, they're dead, a deathbed scene, however, suddenly shifts to an emergency room drama. You know what? What's the Lord saying here? Well, you know, when somebody has had some... where the heart stops, what do they do if they're taken to the hospital? They put that machine on them or those paddles and they try to shock them back to life. And you've seen that happen. And all of a sudden, whoop! And now they're breathing again. Well... That's what he's trying to do here. Isn't this a merciful God? They're dead. But he's offering life here. Their problem was was complacency. And he says, wake up. I've seen on Facebook a lot for the past few months. You know, and people, it's basically they're Christians. And they're saying, it's time to wake up. Wake up! They're talking about the political situation. But also, we need that same message, and even more important, wake up to the dead churches. Wake up to the dead individuals that are in live churches. Right? Wake up! They had been on their guard. They had not watched. That was the problem with the city of Sardis. They thought they were impregnable. Nobody can attack them. All their glory was gone in one attack. And then it happened again. Well, the church is doing the same thing. And that's why when he wrote to Sardis, those people who lived there, they knew full well the history. They knew that they had been defeated severely. They remember that. So the people in the church are saying, oh, this is like the city. That's why he writes this. Strengthen them. Establish the things that remain. The things that are good. Establish them. Don't let them filter and drop off away. What is that? What do you do in in church? You read the Scripture. You do that at home too. You study it. In the church, the preaching of the Word is done. It has to be established. It has to be strong. It has to be vital. What else is in church? Pray. Praying vitally in reality. Giving. Give vitally. All these things pertain to spiritual things. But in reality, they're real. Establish those things. You have the Word of God at home. Pick it up. Read it. Pick it up. Study it. You will be blessed. By the way, are you guys blessed today? It said in Revelation 1, all who read this and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written. The time is near. You will be blessed. You will be blessed. You are blessed. He says, keep it. Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die for I have found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received. Remember it. 
Have you been reading the Word? Remember it. Studying it? Being a part of church? Worshiping God? Hearing the Word of God taught? Remember it. Don't forget it. Remember what you have received. Do you remember your salvation? Do you remember the Word of God that was brought to you? Remember that. You heard it. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing about the Word of Christ. The Word about Messiah. The Word of the Lord. And keep it. That means to do it, keep it near your heart. Have the Word in your heart. You keep that. Don't let it go out. Keep it constant. That's vital. This is how you keep from being dead. If you're in His Word, and every one of us should be challenging each other. Hey, are you in the Word? That's where we want to be. You won't be dead. That's for sure. I guarantee if the Holy Spirit's leading you, you're trying to get God's truth. And then it says repent. Every believer needs to repent daily. Every one of us. Because we're prone to sin and wander, aren't we? That's because of our flesh. But the Spirit of God hates the flesh. The flesh hates the Spirit. You're in war. It is mean. It is something that we have to defeat though. We must defeat sin. Attack it. Be on the offensive against it. Kill it. Mortify it. Stop it. Cut it off. Whatever it is that keeps you from being close to the Lord, mortify it. That's how you do it. You say, well, that sounds... Isn't there a better technique? <laughs> Actually, when it comes down to it, there's some helps that you can get out of books. you know. But honestly, this isn't Colossians to mortify your sins. John Owen wrote about it. That book wasn't wrong, but it really puts into light what we all are dealing with. Sin that wants to kill you, or at least make you get away from the life of the truth. So, repent. By the way, number five now is the threat of the church found in verse 3. Remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, and here is the threat, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come to you. You won't even know what hit you. You won't know when it's going to be. These all can be not only to a church, but to individuals, can it? You don't want to have a thief come in the night, do you? You want to be watching, waiting. The bride has something, a characteristic about it or her. The bride would wait for the bridegroom to come. She didn't know what day nor hour he would come because he was building house. And he didn't even know because he would not be told that he could go until the father said yes. Only the father knows. And then the son, who is the bridegroom, comes to the bride. The bride doesn't know, but what does it say the bride, bride has? The oil. That means the Holy Spirit. Believers. And they will be ready to go at any time. Waiting now. Could be now. I like that, don't you? <laughs> Number six, we close it out. This goes real rapidly now. We're right at the finish. But you have a few people, that's what we've been saying, in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They'll walk in white garments. White can mean different things. And biblically, it has very various meanings. White is, can be simply festive. To wear white robes. White can be representing victory. 
Most of all, white represents purity. All the above work, don't they? Christians, you have every right to be festive. One day we will celebrate. Christ comes back. We'll be dressed in white. Put on your robes of righteousness. They're white. Festive. We have victory. He comes back in victory. We have victory. We are the church triumphant, folks. Reformers quite frequently refer to that term, and today I really like that term. We're winners. See, we were elected. (laughs) You know what this is? This is imputed righteousness. Do you guys like that word? This is reformation wording. Imputed righteousness. Put on your robes of righteousness. That means the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness was counted. That's what impute means. It's a banking term. His righteousness has been accounted to you. It's been transferred over from His account to your account. You're now made righteous. You have the robes of righteousness. That is a cry of the Reformation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. We're getting ready to wrap this up. I promise. In verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Get this. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The righteousness comes not from us. It comes from Christ. He took our sin. Isn't that a great exchange? They hadn't stained their garments. They were white. Now, last but not least, as we close this out, as we speak about the promise to the church, he who overcomes, and we've seen this with all the churches, the overcomers, will thus be clothed in white garments. Who are the overcomers? We already talked about that. They are the ones who believe in Christ. First John 5. We've seen this before. Here we are here in this great after. They are a dead church. Here it is. The slimmer, the slim hope is there. There are true believers, and the ones who are true, guess what? They have white garments. Spiritually, and then later on, whatever that is, we will have white garments. And then he says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. What in the world does that mean? Some people say, well, there was a book of life. That's for every person ever born, ever in the history of mankind, and they're all in it. And if they don't believe, then God takes them out and erases them out. Some believe that. Or others say, it's the book of life, and it's the ones who have eternal life. They are put into that book. And their names are there forever. Or some will say, well, you can lose your salvation, so God takes those ones who were born again and elected and true Christians and He blots them out and now they go to hell. That's for at least half the churches or probably more in our society today that believe that doctrine. Where in the world do they get that? That's loss of salvation. Why? Because of my acts. Thankful to the Lord that I get into heaven not by my acts but the righteous acts of Christ. And that's my robe that I have. What we're saying here is this book of life was written before the foundation of the world. All who were chosen, elected, were put in that and they will always be in the book of life for eternity. And if you're a believer, if you're an overcomer, you are in the book of life. And quickly go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. 20, verse 12. 
I really work at it every week to try to get it to an hour or maybe a little bit less. Probably haven't done that today. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. That means there's more than one book. Books were opened. And another book was opened. That book was the death, or the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. There's a book of life where all believers are in it and always have been there and will be forever. But there's other books where people are going to be judged because of their own works. Guess where they go? You read on, you see it's death and Hades. They're the dead. Wow, really. The book of life, chapter 13, verse 8. The book of life. I love that. It would be a great message in itself, wouldn't it? All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Did you see that? This is talking about in the future, and it could be very near future. Everyone who's on the earth that's not a believer is going to worship the Antichrist. Did you know that? Christians will not. We were written in there from the foundation of the world. Through all eternity. We're there. Is that incredible? I think I might want to look at one more. And it can help us there. Chapter 17, verse 8. Found several times in Revelation. The last one to do. The beast that you saw, Santa Christ, who was and is and is not, is about to come up and of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life, who've not been written before the foundation of the world, these are all unbelievers from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Did you know what? If you're a believer, you will not take the mark. If it's in our lifetime, you will not take that mark because you're protected by Christ. Isn't that good to know? He says, if possible, even the elect would be deceived. What's that mean? Will the elect be deceived? Well, the very ultimate, no, they won't. The elect can really misunderstand. And they can be deceived by a lot of things, but not to the point where they will lose salvation. I've got to stop here. It's a true believer. They'll never perish. No one can pluck them out of my hand. And so he says in Revelation now, at the very end, I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels, all of heaven, I'll confess their names. Isn't that great to know? Before all the rest of His creation, He's going to confess ourselves. I'll confess His name. It's been written in that book of life. He who has an ear, if you can listen to these and you understand, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? This to me is great promise. It's great grace because I and you or all believers are written in that book of life. We do not ever call ourselves dead anymore. We came from that. So we're not being written to. But we as Christians also are told to be wake up. Waking up. Wake up. Be watchful. Beware. Be ready. That is the idea of that. To all those who've heard the Gospel that are not Christians, you need to see Christ for who He is. They come alive in Christ. Repent. That's what He says. Thank you for your time this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, great, holy, awesome God, 
Thank you for writing our names in the book of life. Eternal life. If there's anyone that is not or wonders if they are in the book of life, the Gospel is open to you. And you may be written in the book of life. If you have a desire to follow Christ, you repent, confess your sins, place your trust in the work of Christ on the cross, and you will be saved. Your name is in the book of life. Lord, it's an amazing thing. It goes beyond our minds. It goes beyond our thinking. But we trust Your Word. And we trust that You are the victor. Your kingdom goes far beyond any kingdom that is here on earth or that's ever been. And Yours is really the true kingdom, the only kingdom that we want to be ultimately. Thank You, Lord, for this day. May we take these words as encouragement and to take them as something that will help us pursue You even more, to grow closer. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Have a blessing to read. And actually, Zach, in the bulletin there, I think we have a a blessing right at the bottom of the page. Could you turn there and read that for us as we go at it? We need to be blessed, don't we? We need to be blessed by each other, more importantly, by the very Word of God. It's out of 2 Corinthians 13, I do believe. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.